Well, let's open. I invite you with me to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews, if you're not there yet, chapter 4 is where we're going to pick up our study. As I said, after being away a few weeks over the holidays, we want to resume this rich letter. Hebrews chapter 4. And we are right in the midst of a lengthy warning section of the letter of which there are actually several warnings in the book of Hebrews, and this is one of the lengthier warnings that we are in. And this particular warning is a warning against unbelief, the danger of unbelief we have seen, unbelief in God's word, in his promise to us in Christ, specifically unbelief in God's final Word in his son. That's what he's made known. We celebrate today the gospel, the final climactic revelation of God in the son. Warning against unbelief, this great salvation that Christ has accomplished. This is a warning against falling away from Christ in unbelief. And it's a warning to the church. It's to us. This is written for us. We need these kind of warnings, apparently, because the Bible has them, and they're written to brothers and sisters in Christ, to believers. A warning against unbelief and an exhortation to persevere in faith by guarding against unbelief. And we saw, as we were looking at this warning, that we need each other to do this. To guard against unbelief, we need each other. We cannot be isolated. We cannot be lone rangers. It's not the Christian life. Encourage one another day by day, he said, so that you don't have a hard heart, the deceitfulness of sin. We need each other to guard each other. So I'm glad you're here. It's one of the reasons we gather as the church on Sundays and other times is to encourage one another in our faith so that we don't have a heart of unbelief. Now, what makes this warning that we're looking at in Hebrews 3 and 4, what makes this warning so sobering and powerful is the author's use of God's covenant people in the Old Testament in the wilderness as an example of unbelief. He's giving us a real, live, tangible example of the unbelief of God's people in the Old Testament in the wilderness. That entire generation that came out of Egypt through the Red Sea, saw God's great wonders, received that awesome word at Mount Sinai, that entire generation died in the wilderness in unbelief under God's judgment. That's the example he's using. What a powerful and sobering example that is. And his main point in these two chapters is don't follow their example. Take warning from that example. Be afraid of unbelief. Fear it. Tremble when you read that example. They had every advantage, every privilege, and yet they fell in unbelief under God's judgment. So be sobered and don't follow their example. That's the main message of these two chapters. Now, our author uses 
the Holy Spirit's given warning based on those events, the Holy Spirit's warning from those events in Psalm 95. That's what he's doing. He's quoting Psalm 95, which is the Holy Spirit's warning based on those events in the wilderness. Let me read that again for us. This quote from Psalm 95. He quotes it in Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 11. So you can follow there in your Bible or just look on the screen. These are the words from Psalm 95 that he is using as his warning. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Psalm 95, and you hear the warning. And then he, he proceeds to apply that warning to us, the church. Take it. Beware, brethren of that heart of unbelief like you see in the wilderness, that hard heart that doesn't respond to God's word, his word of promise. Now that psalm is written centuries after those events in the wilderness. And yet it continues to be a relevant example for God's people today. That's what Psalm 95 is doing. Centuries later, saying, look back there. Be warned. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So this, this warning from Psalm 95 continues to be relevant for God's people today. He warns us of those dangers. Now, we've seen all that. I want you to look, look there at the last two words of that quotation. You see them? The last two words. They shall not enter into, here's the last two words, my rest. You see them? This is God speaking. Spirit said, this is God speaking. They shall not, to the wilderness generation, that's what I said to them, they shall not enter my rest. Now, we expect there, in the context of the book of Numbers and the wilderness, him to say, God swore that they shall not enter the land of Canaan. That's what he kept them from entering, the land of Canaan. But he interprets that as God's rest. They shall not enter my rest. Now, I have you note those words because those two words become prominent in chapter 4. This idea of God's rest and entering God's rest. He's still going to warn us in chapter 4. We'll see it this morning. But now the emphasis changes slightly. We're in chapter 3. He's, he's warning about the nature of unbelief. Now, as he's warning... He's going to talk about the promise of rest and the need to enter it. Enter God's rest. So the warning takes a new emphasis with this idea of rest. Don't fail to enter God's rest through unbelief. The result of this unbelief is a failure to enter the rest, God's rest, like the wilderness generation failed. So... Hang on to that, because that's where he's going in chapter 4. Now, the last thing we saw when we were together a few weeks ago was the end of chapter 3, where our author drew out the example of Israel in the wilderness. 
what happened to them. And he, he did that by asking these three questions. Let me reread that for us because it's going to flow right into chapter 4. This is chapter 3, verse 16. He's drawing out what happened to Israel in the wilderness to make sure we get the point. So here, here's how he does it with these questions. Verse 16, for who provoked him or who rebelled when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses, that entire generation, rebelled? With whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell, that is, fell under judgment in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see they were not able to enter, enter the rest because of unbelief. So he wants us to be really clear of what that example teaches. Who was it? The whole generation fell in unbelief under judgment and were not able to enter. Therefore, therefore, look at chapter four, first word, therefore. He's going to draw the implications of that very sobering, powerful example. Therefore, here's what you learn. So let's listen to him. Now I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read this larger paragraph. It's a complex paragraph. We're not going to see all of it today, but I want to read it so you hear all of it at once. So starting in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, based on that example, let us fear. Lest, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because, I think this is how it should read, because they, that unbelieving generation, they were not united to those who heard with faith. For we have, who have believed enter that rest or are entering that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long after a time has just been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Stop there. Now, that's not an easy paragraph. <laughs> if you didn't follow him, join the club. In his kind of logic, it's, it's challenging to know his flow of thought and will get to it's not an easy paragraph but the main exhortation is very clear because he says it in verse one 
And then he repeats it in verse 11. So he bookends this difficult paragraph with his main exhortation. Verse 1, let us fear lest we come short of this rest. Verse 11, let us be diligent to enter the rest lest anyone fall through following that example of Israel. So his exhortation's really clear. Here it is. It's my heading. Don't fail to enter God's rest. That's clear. Don't fail to enter God's rest. So he says in verse 1, he repeats it in there. Be diligent to enter God's rest. Don't, don't do like they did in Israel when they had so much revelation, so much privilege, and yet they didn't enter Rest because of unbelief. So don't do that. Don't fail to enter God's rest through unbelief. So that's his main exhortation. That's really clear. A key idea in this paragraph, go back to chapter 4, verse 1, is, is this phrase. Here's, here's his key idea. Therefore, let us fear, here's the key idea, while a promise remains of entering his rest. A promise remains for us of entering God's rest. That's, that's what he needs to develop. Where does he get that from the Bible? How does he know that there's a promise of rest remaining? So he's going to get that. That's what he's going to develop. We'll see it more, but let me just say a couple things about that. First, this promise, the promise given to the wilderness generation is still in effect today. That's what he's seeing. A promise remains. It's, it's left out there, his idea. They, they didn't enter it, so that promise is remaining for some to enter. So the promise given to the wilderness generation is still in effect today. So our author, insightfully, as he reads Psalm 95, he not only hears the warning against unbelief, but he sees in that last line of Psalm 95 an implicit promise of God's rest. When God said, they shall not enter my rest, that means there's a rest to enter. And that promise remains. So he, he sees in that an implicit promise. And it's the same promise that they had, that they heard. Now, this concept, when he says a promise remains, that's the first time he uses the word promise the idea of promise in the Bible looms large, doesn't it? It's, in fact, it's foundational to all of biblical theology. God's promise. All through the Bible, it's his promise that he is fulfilling. And that promise, as we'll see, starts all the way back in creation. It's made explicit to Abraham, the promise of God, this kingdom promise that includes this rest, and now is fulfilled in Jesus, the final word, this promise remains. So it's a key thought that he's going to develop even more in this letter. Now, what does that imply, that a promise remains of entering his rest? I think it implies this. This implies the eternal nature of God's resting place and a future entrance into it. Okay. This rest remains. The land of Canaan was not the fulfillment of this rest. It was a type. It was a picture. It pointed to it. 
But it wasn't the fulfillment. That's what he's going to go on to say. This rest remains. So the rest that he is talking about here ultimately is a heavenly or eternal rest. That is the promise of God that goes all the way back to creation. And that promise that was given to Abraham, yes, of a land, but ultimately it's a promise of an heavenly city. That's the promise. So the fact that this promise remains means it wasn't fulfilled in the land of Canaan. That it has an eternal or heavenly nature to it. That it's future. All through this, his emphasis on entering is future. Future. That promise remains of entering his rest. Be diligent. This final rest is coming. It's, it's a future rest. So there's implications for today, but, but it's out there. It's awaiting to be entered. And we must persevere until we enter it. And it's a place. It's the resting place of God. It's something we enter into. Just like the land of Canaan was a type of that. They, it's something we enter. That is, this rest is not merely a state of mind. It's not just a peaceful kind of state of mind. Oh, it entails that. But it is ultimately a place. God's resting place. That eternal city that we will enter. So... That's a little bit about rest. Now, we're going to leave that. We're just, we'll develop, because he's going to develop this nature and availability of rest in the rest of this paragraph, really, verses 4 and following. We're, we're just going to leave that for next time, because it is complex. We'll work through it. How does he get this from the Bible? How does he put it together? I think it's insightful reading of the Bible. What does he mean by it? Do we have the rest? How do we enter the rest? We'll get to that. So we'll develop this whole concept of rest Lord willing, next Sunday. But before we get there, his first, his first desire here is that we heed the warning. This present availability of rest, while the promise of rest remains, strengthens his warning. Don't miss it. It's available. It remains. It's right here. So how tragic if you fall short of it. So he starts again with this exhortation and warning. And I just want us to see that this morning, mostly. And then next time we'll develop the idea of rest. So the, the admonition, the warning, don't fail to enter his rest. Just two things I have here. And they're mainly in verses 1 and 2. That's where he starts it. Number one, the necessity of healthy fear. The necessity of healthy fear. Do you see it? Verse 1. This is the implication he draws. You look at that sobering example of Israel in the wilderness and their unbelief. Here's what he wants us to do. Therefore, let us fear. Fear. Huh. Really? Is that right? Are we to fear? Aren't we to live fearless? What does that mean? That's the implication he's drawing. 
from that example, let us fear. Now, it's, it's really a synonym or a heightened synonym back from verse 12 when he first read Psalm 95 and his first exhortation was, beware, beware, take care, look out for a heart of unbelief. Well, now he's really elevating it, saying, fear, fear. Because of what's at stake, missing out on God's rest, failing to enter, fear. Notice also here, the author includes himself. You see that? Let us fear. Let us fear. As I I tried to argue a few weeks ago, these warnings are written to Christians. Not simply to all most Christians, or to those who may be deceived, He includes himself. Let us fear. Himself, the author, let us fear. I argued that these warnings, like here, these admonitions are part of God's means of keeping us from falling away in unbelief. We are to heed these as Christians. So he includes himself. So our response to Israel's Example of unbelief in the wilderness. When we read that, the reason that's in there for us to read is that we would fear that. We would fear it. We would come away trembling when we read that story. Lest it happen to us. That's what he's saying. In fact, it's the same thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 quoted that passage several weeks ago, very similar, where he's referring back to that wilderness generation. And he says, after giving their example of their failing, says to us, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Don't be arrogant. Come away with a trembling humility, lest that happen to us. So the necessity of a healthy fear. Now the question is, what is, I called it a healthy fear, what is a healthy fear? Because he's assuming that this fear has some place, healthy, right place in the Christian life. Let us fear. What is that? Well, maybe it helps by starting saying what it's not. Because there are many wrong kind of fears that we're not to have. So we could say probably many of those things, but let me give this one. It's not the crippling fear characterized by doubt or uncertainty of one's salvation. That's not the fear here. It's not you should fear because you may not be a real Christian. You may be a fake Christian. Even though you're trusting Christ and the promises of Christ. Now, I say that because I've heard this taught that way and just kind of unsettling here that you never really know. I think that's a crippling, almost paralyzing kind of fear that leads to a wrong kind of, as I said a few weeks ago, a wrong kind of introspection and can lead to a very works-oriented righteousness that i got to do more if I'm really a Christian. So I don't think it's the, this kind of doubt or uncertainty of one's salvation. That is where we, we're wrongly fearing the judgment of God because I doubt his promise to me in Christ. That's a wrong fear. 
If you're trusting in the promise of God in Christ by faith alone, we have every assurance, confidence. He's going to say at the end of this chapter, we sang it, draw near with confidence. So how do you put confidence with fear, right? So it's not this not trusting the promise of God. That's the wrong kind of fear where you say, well, I know what he said and I'm believing that, but I don't think I'm good enough. Or you don't know how bad I've been. That's a wrong fear. I think that's what John, 1 John 4, is talking about when he says, love casts out fear, that wrong fear of judgment. We don't live paralyzed with that. We have confidence. We trust his promise. In fact, it was that kind of fear that was the unbelieving fear of Israel. Right? They feared the giants in the land and they didn't trust the promise of God. That's a wrong fear. So it's not that fear, obviously, that he has in mind here. We have confidence. He said in chapter 2 that Christ came to deliver us from the fear of death. We don't fear that. We don't fear God's judgment in that sense that we're going to experience it if we're trusting his promise. No. So what does he mean? <laughs> Let us fear. I think it's this. The fear of unbelief and its consequences as a motivation to use the means of grace to persevere in faith. It's kind of a mouthful. Let me say it again. The fear. What is the fear? What do we fear? We fear unbelief. The fear of unbelief and its consequences. And that fear is a motivation, it's not paralyzed, it's a motivation for us to employ the means of grace to continue to persevere in faith. That's the healthy trembling, the healthy fear of the Christian life. What is it we fear? Not death. Not the judgment of God if we're in Christ. We fear unbelief. We fear falling away in unbelief like they did in the wilderness. Fear that. And you'll be fearless. Fear unbelief. See, and, and the way you fear that is you see the devastating consequences of unbelief in the example of Israel. Look, look what happened. You see the severity of God's judgment. So yeah, there's a trembling of God's judgment because it's real, because we believe in God's judgment. But if we're trusting in Christ, we, we, we won't experience it. But we don't want to fall into unbelief. So we fear but we fear not trusting God. We fear the cliff that is unbelief. And so we stay away from the cliff, right? So I said several weeks ago about those warning signs. <laughs> warning, this will kill you if you do this. That's to put a healthy fear in us not to do it, right? That's the healthy kind of fear. Unbelief leads to falling away and the judgment of God. So stay away from unbelief. Fear unbelief. That is not a disabling, paralyzing fear. It is actually a motivating fear. <laughs> Isn't it? It's motivating that we're going to employ the means of grace, I call them, historically what they're called, the means of grace in order to keep believing, trusting the promise of God. Those means of grace, there are many of them, but he, he gave us a couple there back in chapter 3, verse 12, when he said, Beware, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. So 
we're, we're watching for the uprisings of unbelief in our heart? I said, one of those is an incessant grumbling and complaining. That comes from unbelief. A, a disregarding disobedience to God's word. At the root of that is unbelief. So we're, we're watchful over our heart that way. And we learned in verse 13, encourage one another. That's part of the means we need each other to be watchful. So we're going to employ that because we fear unbelief. We're going to be here on Sundays under the word of God. We're going to be in a small group because we're going to be encouraged. We're going to be meeting with other believers because we know that it's dangerous out there by myself. That's what the fear, this fear does. It, dry, it motivates us to these means of grace. Not a paralyzing fear. Not this questioning, oh, I don't know if I'm really a Christian. Not feeding that kind of wrong doubt. But fighting with gospel promises. I like the analogy Tom Schreiner used in his comment on this verse. He said, the fear commanded here stim is a stimulus to action like the fear that motivates mountain climbers to ensure that all their equipment is working properly. That's right. It's a good analogy. They're still going to mountain climb, but... But they're going to be careful that the equipment's working, right? When the guy hands you the parachute, you probably want to know. Did you look at that? Did you pack that right? Is that working right? There's a healthy fear. Why? Because the cliff is there. It's, I don't want to go over the cliff. So a right fear of unbelief is the fear here. Now, this is the fear, the trembling, the healthy fear that must characterize us. This is the command. That's why I call it the necessity of a healthy fear. A, a Remember, the whole Christian life starts with a fear of the Lord, doesn't it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom, that trembling of who God is. We trust Him. We bank on His promises. Let me, let me just give you a few other places in the Bible where the same kind of fear is commanded. You know that? Commanded for Christians. This is not isolated here to just the book of Hebrews, but is throughout the scriptures. Romans, of course. Romans 11. Do you remember this text? He's speaking to us Gentile Christians. This is where Israel, again, not the same example of the wilderness, but just Israel in general has fallen in unbelief. The branches have been broken off. And in verse 20, he says, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. You stand only by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Remember that? Same warning. Look at Israel and tremble. He didn't spare them. He would, so keep believing, right? You stand only by your faith. Don't be arrogant. There's a humility in this. Philippians chapter 2, Paul commands us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You know that? Again, it's a command. With a healthy fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, fascinating. If, if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work... What should be the outcome? Conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay on earth. Not expecting that, are you? 
If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear. That is this healthy fear that fears unbelief, fears disobedience, and the uprisings of unbelief that seeks to preach these gospel promises to ourselves. So let me ask you, do you, do you fear unbelief and its consequences? Again, not, not in the paralyzing sense that I'm not really sure I'm a Christian. I mean, you're just staying away from it. You're, you're, you're watchful. You're meeting together. You're speaking gospel promises to each other. When, when unbelief rises up in your heart, and it does, doesn't it? Doubts rise up. When it rises up in your heart, do you tremble and apply the promises of God? I do. I, one of the things I pray frequently may sound an odd prayer to you. One of the things I pray is, Father, keep me believing. Keep me trusting. I'm not taking it for granted that I woke up this morning trusting the gospel. You are able to keep me. Keep me from unbelief. Pray that God would keep you. So fear unbelief. So that's First, now, just second note under that in the text here, a motivation for healthy fear. So we have the necessity of healthy fear from that example and fearing unbelief and falling away, a motivation for healthy fear. Now, this is verse 2. So just, I'm just following him in the text here. So he starts with fear while a promise remains, lest any one of you should seem to be found short. You, you've, you've You're found short of entering the rest. Don't do that. For, now he's going to give a reason. See it, verse 2? A reason for this command to fear. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us. Have we ever? We have had good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because they, that generation, they were not united to those who heard in faith. So here's the motivation. He's going back to that example in Israel. He keeps going back to that example. But, but now he's, he's, he's going to make a pretty close connection between us and the people in the wilderness to heighten this sense of we, we should be trembling here. We, we're, we're not doing that. So he, he says, we have had good news preached to us. Now, this is, this is as close as our author gets to using the word gospel. He never uses the noun gospel, but this is a verbal form to, uh, to preach good news, to proclaim good news. We have had good news preached to us. Indeed, we have. <laughs> We have had the gospel certainly preached to us, the good news of this great salvation in Christ. But, but what he says next might surprise you, just as they also. They also had good news, the good news preached to them. What, what is he talking about? What good news? Well, obviously, it's not the, the facts of the death and burial and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. But here he's thinking generally the promise of entering God's rest. That's good news. That's the promise that has been proclaimed, as we'll see next time, from Genesis, from the beginning. And that was 
proclaimed to Abraham, has been proclaimed to the children of Israel, the promise of entering Israel. It's the same promise we have, this same good news. Yes, now the form of that good news is this great salvation fulfilled in Christ, but the essence of that promise is the same. Entering God's final, eternal rest. They have that preached to them, just like we have it preached to us. They had it preached to them, and it did not profit them. So here's the point. Israel, in the wilderness, heard the same promise, this promise of entering rest, but it did not profit them because of unbelief. That's what he's telling us to, to fear, to tremble, because look at the example. They had, a, they had all these privileges. We, we rehearsed them when we were in chapter 3 of all that they saw in Egypt and being led out of the Red Sea and all the provision in the wilderness and the Mount Sinai revelation. They, they had it, and they had this promise, the promise given to Abraham of entering God's rest, entering the land. But it didn't profit them. He says there in verse 2, it didn't profit them because they did not join themselves to those who heard with faith. He's thinking now, so first of all, that's Caleb and Joshua in the story. They were those who believed the promise. And this whole generation didn't, didn't go with them, right? They chose to go the opposite. They didn't go with them. But when he says those who heard with faith, he's anticipating this great company of those in the Old Testament who live by faith. He's going to give us an entire chapter of those who lived by faith in the promise. And these didn't join themselves with that great company. Oh, and he's he's just, again, saying to us Christians, don't, don't just outwardly be part of the people, right? By faith, you join the people of God, those who by faith respond to his word. So take warning. Again, that's part of that warning there. Merely hearing this good news is of no value, no value if there's no response of faith. They heard it and it didn't profit them Because there was no faith, ultimately. So just hearing, merely hearing, is of no value if there's not the response of faith. You can attach yourself to the church, the people of God. You can hear this good news and hear it and hear it and respond with a hard heart. It's that humble response of faith, repentance and faith and trust is when it is of great value, a great salvation, we enter his rest. So, again, the motivation for the warning is back to Israel and their negative example. They heard, they had the good news, and it didn't profit them because they did not hear. But then he adds, verse 3, for we who have believed are entering that rest. So my last point. As those who have believed, we are in the process of entering his rest. So be diligent to enter that rest. So he's going to contrast. Yet they didn't join themselves to those who heard the word with faith. But we are those who have believed. So he's confident of who he's writing to, speaking to the church. We have believed this good news. 
We have believed it. That's our response. And as those who believe, we are entering his rest. Now, I think that's the way you should translate verse 3. It's present. I think it's a true present continuous tense here. We are entering his rest. We are in route. We are in the process of entering his rest. We'll see that for him, that entrance is future. Ultimate entrance into the rest is future. It's when we enter God's resting place. That's why we need to be careful that we don't fall away from it, he says, because it's still out there. We have believed, and those who have believed are characterized by entering into his rest. Now, it's right at this point that he's going to develop this concept of rest. He's going to use the scripture and he's going to give us what, what is it, why is it available? What is this rest? Where does the scripture teach us? So that's where we're going to pick it up next time and, and see it. So we'll, we'll leave that here. But here I just want to stay with the exhortation to a healthy fear and to be diligent to enter that rest. So, so again, look, look over there at verse 11 because he's just going to say it again, the, the last exhortation of this paragraph. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. We have believed. We're trusting the gospel. So be diligent ultimately to enter the rest. Don't fall out along the way. That's what he says. Lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. You see it? So that rest ultimately of entering is future. It remains. And we are on the journey toward that promised land of rest. We have believed. Now, he will develop. Oh, what privilege, what advantage we have as those who are in Christ. This access we have even now to that heavenly city. The access we have now to the throne of grace to receive help in this perseverance. Oh, what privilege we have as those who have believed. So apply yourself and don't fail to enter. Don't quit along the way. Don't stop believing. Fear unbelief. Continue to persevere. Be di- Do you notice that word there in verse 11? Be diligent to enter. Hmm. The Christian life is not casual, is it? Again, the, these kind of commands, fear, <laughs> Be diligent. They, they can fly in the face of kind of a contemporary, casual kind of Christianity. There's a fight of faith, Paul says. I fought the fight of faith. I'm fighting. I'm putting to death unbelief. We are to put on the armor of God in order to resist in the evil day and to stand firm. Firm against the schemes of the devil. And part of that armor of God is what? Taking the shield of faith to extinguish those fiery arrows by the evil one. Those fiery arrows that are calling you to not believe. That are sowing doubt and telling you it's not true. Don't believe it. You won't be saved anyway. It's not real. We're taking the shield of faith and we're in warfare. That's the Christian life, right? Not the casual, ho-hum, I believed when I was eight. No, it's the fight of faith. Fear, 
be diligent to enter. One of the best loved Christian books in all of history, I'm sure all of you probably have read, if you haven't, you should, The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, written back in the 1600s, the bestseller next to the Bible in all of literature. If you've read it, you know the story. It's, it's, it's so well-loved. It's an allegory of the Christian life, isn't it? That's what he's writing, an allegory of the Christian life. And it's so vivid. But the one thing you take away, what, what surprises me is why it's so popular, because when you come away from that book, the one thing you take away is that the Christian life is not casual. There's dangers everywhere, right? That what he is fighting, one of my favorite scenes is, is the giant of despair. Remember that? The, yeah, the giant of despair who locks them up and his friend up in Doubting Castle in the dungeon. Remember that? And he's afflicted. They're tortured and they're being starved and he wants them to commit suicide. Stop believing. And remember what he takes out of his pocket? The key. Promise. The promise. And he just unlocks the door. He can go out. He's going to rehearse the promises of God, not unbelief. What a picture of the Christian life. That's a vivid, and I think it's really accurate picture of the Christian life. So keep trusting. Again, let me be really clear as I, as I finish this. I, I do not want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not trying to say here at all that you start the Christian life by faith in Christ and now you've got to work really hard to keep yourself saved. <laughs> no, it's by faith. It's by faith alone from beginning to end. It's God's grace. What we're fighting is to continue to trust the promises of God. Right? We're fighting unbelief. It's not perfection. It's not me working it out. It is applying the gospel to my heart and life daily and in the church so that I keep trusting. It's always by faith. So persevere, Christian. Persevere. Tremble before unbelief. Have you? Now, that, that's the warning to Christians. That's the exhortation. But maybe you haven't believed this good news. He says in verse 3, we who have believed are entering that rest. Maybe you haven't never believed in this good news. You're not trusting in it this morning. Oh, take warning from the example of Israel. They heard it, and they heard it, and they heard it. And they responded with a hard heart and unbelief and fell under God's judgment. Don't, don't repeat that. Today, he says, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear this good news, repent and believe and enter his rest. It's there for you. Let me pray for us as we finish. Oh, Father, take, take now these, these sobering and somewhat difficult words and just apply them rightly. We would not fear wrongly your judgments. We would draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We would shake off our guilty fears. But we would fear unbelief. And that you would keep us applying the gospel promises to our heart and mind every day as we see the day drawing near. Oh, keep us that we might enter ultimately your rest.
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.